Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord, Editor-in-Chief of No Film School. I am Emily Buter, Managing Editor of No Film School. I'm John Fusco, Producer at No Film School. Charles Hain, Tech Writer, No Film School. It's December 15th, 2016, and on this week's show, a major Ask No Film School question. What's the best 4K camera under $5,000? Plus, the 2016 Blacklist, a Netflix deal gone bad, clips from our interview with Rogue One DP Greg Frazier, and as always, more news you can news about gear, upcoming deadlines, and new film releases. Welcome to this week's show from cold and crisp downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School. As always, we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. Our first news item this week is The Blacklist has released their annual list of the year's best unproduced screenplays. So this happened on Monday, and if you're not familiar with The Blacklist, it's a list of unproduced screenplays that have been compiled from the suggestions of over 250 film executives, each of whom contribute the names of up to 10 of their favorite scripts that were written in 2016, but they cannot have begun principal photography during the calendar year. So this full list includes 73 screenplays, and each script requires at least six mentions to be included. The rankings are based on how many votes the script received. So this year, at the top of the list, is a debut screenplay by Elise Hollander. The screenplay is entitled Blonde Ambition, and it covers the creation of Madonna's first record in 1980s New York. It scored 48 points. Other highlights from the list include Steve Rogers' screenplay for the Tanya Harding biopic, I, Tanya. The film already has Margot Robbie attached as the infamous ice skater, and as you know, we all like Margot Robbie a lot, and Tanya Harding... That whole case is just one of the weirdest, most bizarre things I think ever to happen in sports. So I think it'll Can be you, really interesting. What happened? Um, wow. Yet wow. another situation where Charles and <laughs> yeah, I feel Char- wicked old. Do you, you guys seem excited about this. Charles, do you want to explain? So there was a fierce rivalry between two figure skaters, Tanya Harding and... Tara Lipinski? No. no. <laughs> it's like 40 years later. <laughs> I'm dating myself right now. What was the dark haired one's name with the big teeth? <sighs> We're going to look it up and get back we to you. But anyway, up. so Tanya Harding desperately wanted to be the best figure skater in the world. And was it they her? They were both Americans. They were on the same team. Yes. And was it her ex husband? Or ex-boyfriend? Yeah, I think it was her, her, like, while she was there, it was her husband. And then they got divorced. She had her husband hit her rival figure skater in the knee with a stick. That's brutal. Yeah, Yeah, it's totally brutal. And, like, the drama around, like, there was nothing else in the news in 1988, I don't think. I think that was it (laughs) for a year. Oh, I just missed it, actually. Another hot news item that's being covered by these screenplays is Linda Tripp and Monica Lewinsky's relationship around the time when the whole uh, Bill Clinton, Monica Lewinsky affair went down. I was definitely alive for that, and I remember everything about it, so shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Good. Um, The script is called Linda and Monica, and it is a peek into one of the biggest presidential scandals in American history. Interesting that all of these are based on true stories. One of the things that this list can really be helpful for in that sense for emerging screenwriters is to sort of identify trends in what is popular for screenplays. And there were a lot of biopics and movies that were based on actual events 
um, in this year's list of 73 films. But then there was also the opposite, right? A lot of fantasy. Yeah. So on the other end of the spectrum, and I think that this also has to do with, you know, the popularity of shows like Stranger Things. And we're seeing fantasy and science fiction being taken seriously more, I think, than it has in the past. Those are some hot genres on the list as well. So many of us aspire to have a screenplay on the blacklist at some point in our career, and that's because it can be a major launching off point for any screenwriter who is lucky enough to be featured on it. Some of this year's biggest movies were featured in previous iterations of the list, including Arrival, Manchester by the Sea, and A Monster Calls, which I actually have an interview coming out um, about next week. Or, yeah, I think we're going to do it next Monday. Last year's Best Picture Oscar winner, Spotlight, was featured on the list back in 2013. So yeah, to check out the whole list and to sort of go in and look at some of those trends, including sex with robots and other weird stuff. And other true tales. True tales and fairy tales alike. Go to No Film School and check out the article. We have a list um, that has all the movies and all their log lines. So it can actually be useful in identifying a successful log line as well if you want to um, check that out. Speaking of choices made by top executives, I think we as a whole in the indie film world probably don't spend enough time thinking about the business side of things or even really know how it goes down with the major gatekeepers for our work. So, for example, have you heard of the UBS Global Media and Communications Conference? Uh, no. Emily hasn't heard of it, so neither have you. (laughs) I haven't heard of it, and I'm a nerd. Well, UBS is UBS, the investment bank, and according to their site, this conference is Wall Street's longest-running one. It's in its 44th year, and it's entirely dedicated to media, advertising, broadcasting, and telecom companies. These are the companies that ultimately end up deciding many of our fates, whether by buying and distributing our work or creating the platforms and regulations that dictate how that work can be seen. And make no mistake, their fates are decided in boardrooms on Wall Street at conferences like this. So I think what's worth noting for indie filmmakers is that the only streaming company to have much of a presence at the conference, including a keynote address by Chief Content Officer Ted Sarandos, was Netflix. And at that keynote, Sarandos mentioned the company's $6 billion original content budget for 2017. Netflix currently has 30 scripted series in various stages of production, doubling last year's number, and that that number will double again next year. So when I started looking into this story, it was going to be yet another one like we've done in the past about how Netflix is a potentially excellent choice for indie filmmakers. In this case, because it has a seat at the grown-ups table, is spending lots of money on new stuff, and has in recent years directed a good chunk of that money to independent filmmakers. And that's still true. One of our own No Film School family is making a first feature financed by the company as we speak. But that doesn't mean that there aren't cautionary tales, and this is one of those. Business Insider this week reported on a Netflix indie film deal gone bad. The film in question is Do Not Resist, a documentary by Craig Atkinson about militarization of the police in the U.S. Now, this is a long and winding tale, so I'll try to give you the abbreviated version here. Atkinson was approached by a Netflix executive with a deal just ahead of the film's premiere at this year's Tribeca Film Festival. The deal seemed pretty sweet. In exchange for all worldwide rights and putting the Netflix original branding on the film, Atkinson would get 70 grand toward finishing funds for the film and a six-figure purchasing price. Now, this was his first documentary, so it sounds pretty good. The deal had to be signed by noon on the day of the film's upcoming premiere. So here's the catch. Netflix would have full control over the final cut of the film and could make any changes they saw fit, including to the title or any content, without Atkinson's buy-in. 
He was reluctant to agree to the unspecified changes, not just for artistic purposes, but as the son of a cop himself, he and producer Laura Hartrick had worked hard to gain the trust of their subjects over three years of production, and part of that was the team's assurance that they would be the ones responsible for how the footage was used. So, despite the lucrative offer, Atkinson declined. Then, the film went on to success at Tribeca, winning the Best Documentary Prize, funny enough, sponsored by Netflix. So, after all that success and a bunch of sold-out screenings, they got interest from big prospective buyers like Magnolia Pictures and Samuel Goldwyn Films, which means that the film would still get to stream on Netflix because of those companies' deals with the service. Right? Maybe not so much. Here's where it gets a little shady. When Atkinson got into deal-making mode with these buyers, they suddenly all pulled out. According to Business Insider, quote, he was told that Netflix blocks any service deals for movies on the streaming platform after they've turned down Netflix original deals. Buyers told Atkinson that in today's market, in which being on Netflix and other streaming services is so important, his movie was no longer an attractive title because a company could no longer own all revenue streams. Damn, Netflix, that is cold. So, what's happening now? Well, Atkinson made a streaming deal with Amazon for a lot less money, but with full creative control. And Do Not Resist is available there as of yesterday. So I encourage you to check out the timely doc on Amazon and support a filmmaker who stuck to his indie guns. Interestingly, I was attending a panel at Doc NYC this year, maybe about a month ago, and Atkinson was on the panel and he spoke about this scenario in which he turned down a really lucrative offer because, you know, he felt a certain responsibility to his subjects. And he seemed to be talking about it as if it were a very positive decision that he stood by and didn't regret for a second. But I guess this was before this second story unfolded. I mean, I think he is pleased with the decision he made because he kept his integrity. That The Business um, Insider article also talks about that. But I think the point is more that this is a cautionary tale for any of us who might be very tempted as, you know, broke filmmakers who go into the hole to make a film to jump at our first deal. Um, But just, you know, be warned that there might be strings attached that are too great for you to bear. Well, it's Netflix's world and we're just living in it. You know, I just read actually this morning that Amazon now has... uh, a presence in more countries than Netflix does internationally. I don't know what country made that one seal the deal, but they actually now have a bigger global presence. In more TV news, I was surprised to learn that the Showtime series Shameless is about to enter its eighth season. Maybe. Shameless is a top five cable drama among total viewers, and along with Homeland is Showtime's longest-running scripted original series, which, again, I really had no idea. I see the ads all the time. Didn't know it was so big and so popular. But now the production is on hold while its female lead, Emmy Rossum, is negotiating for equal pay with the show's male lead, William H. Macy. And she's not stopping there. She wants to get paid more next season, even more than Macy, to compensate for the fact that the past seven seasons, Macy was paid more highly. So you might argue that Macy was a bigger star and should get paid more, which might have held up for the show's first season. But Rossum's no slouch. She's been acting professionally for almost 20 years, which is amazing since she's only like 26. And she was nominated for a Golden Globe in 2004 for Phantom of the Opera. 
And since that first season, she's gone on to have more screen time than Macy, been nominated for two Critics' Choice Awards for her work on the show, and even directed an episode. So William H. Macy has come out in support of Rossum's request, and the fate of the show hangs in the balance. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, in a way, I can't even believe that this is still a conversation. Like, Yeah, I the, thought we did this already with Jennifer Lawrence. Yeah. Nope. I guess that was not a TV show. Um, uh, I suspect that we're going to have to refight this battle on every movie and TV show one at a time. Forever and ever. The big first case of this was Courtney Cox demanding equal pay in Friends in the 90s. So this conversation is still going on. But we hope that Showtime does the right thing and that you all do, too, when you're casting your projects. Moving on to gear news. Here's Charles Hayne. So we had some fun gear news this week. The first thing was a $2,500 suit that could bring motion capture to the masses. So mocap is incredibly cool. You get to build uh, whole creatures and then craft these amazing performances for them by capturing the motion of a performer. The most famous example, obviously, is Gollum from Lord of the Rings, but it's a huge part of studio-level cinema for the last few years. You might call motion capture precious. However, it usually requires a large complicated stage, a large number of tracking points, and a large amount of photographic data. Rococo helps to solve all that with the SmartSuit Pro. After talking their film school in Denmark into building a motion capture stage, which is impressive enough, they discovered how frustrating the whole process could be, so they built a suit so that you could do it without an entire stage. It's a sensor-laden sports suit that allows you to do motion capture in any kind of lighting environment or out in the field. Uh, the suit's available now for twenty four ninety five, and it integrates with game engines like Unreal and Unity, and it integrates with Motion Builder and Maya. Most of those tools are still a little sophisticated for the average indie filmmaker, but if you're an After Effects wizard, which is really common in indie cinema, you can download .fbx files straight out of the suit into After Effects and control objects in 3D that way. There are so many online places where you can download 3D models of characters, plug it into After Effects, and use the suit to do some pretty sophisticated motion capture for like a tiny fraction of what it would cost you to rent a studio. So it's pretty cool. I just want to be clear, though, when Charles said twenty four ninety five, he didn't mean $24.95. Oh, yeah. It's affordable, but not that affordable. Well, it's $2,495, which is still $2,500, but for motion capture, compared to a day on a stage, it's a good deal. They also do academic pricing, so maybe you can talk your local film school into buying one, the way they talked their Danish film school into building a mocap stage. So there, there are some options there. I also suspect that some rental houses will end up having them around where you can rent them for 100 a day or 100 a weekend if you're just doing motion capture one-offs for a music video, say. Also cool, out of MIT comes a story, don't buy another drone, build one yourself. So drones are very hard to build. Even action camera giant GoPro has had challenges building theirs. It's falling out of the air. Although I feel like this is like the fourth podcast in a row that I've mocked that. Yeah. But, <laughs> but really, guys, don't let your drones fall out of the air. So MIT's CSAIL program, students are working on making an open source drone building process easier for the masses. Uh, anyone should be able to design their own drone, even if you don't have a computer science or engineering background. So if you're a filmmaker and you've got a new camera that you want to make fly or you're designing a whole kind of shot that doesn't quite work with the commercially available drones, you don't have to wait for DJI or Unique to make a drone to your needs. You can design and build one yourself, which I think is like just really cool. 
The final big tech news of the week, uh, live streaming video over the internet has become a really huge part of the industry, but it's mostly still one person holding a phone, usually in like a selfie view, streaming from a single camera. But if you're a filmmaker and you want to do a more sophisticated live stream, let's say you want to do a live stream from behind the scenes on a shoot you're working on, or maybe you want to do regular live stream showing off your working process, you're going to want better tools because you're a filmmaker and you care about this stuff. Switcher Studio is a great tool for that. It lets you link up a whole bunch of iOS devices, so like an iPad and a couple of iPod Touches, and treat them all as cameras and then switch between the different viewpoints. So if you were doing a BTS on set, you could have a camera over by the main set and a camera over by DIT and a camera at hair and makeup, and you could switch live stream to your audience between them. You can also load up graphics and video cues and do pretty sophisticated live streams in a really interesting, cost-effective way with just iOS stuff so like the camera you already own you can sync it up with all the other iphones on set that is so cool it's amazing so do you use one phone as the switcher and the others as cameras or can that switcher phone also be the camera the switcher phone is also a camera wow so usually what they recommend is an ipad so you have a bigger image to see the switching but that also works as a camera and then you know for 200 dollars, you can get ipod touches so you could have as many ipod touches you want or the iphones you already have sound can only come from one camera So, because you can't stream the sound. So you usually run a mic into the iPad or something like that, but then you can live switch and load up video and it records it all so that, and you can then put it in Final Cut Pro X and it brings in all the edits. So if one of the edits you did live, you want to like smoosh around a little bit, it comes in with all the edits and you can like tweak your edit a little bit in post. I love smooshing. So yeah, they also just launched Switcher Go, which is a free app in the App Store, so that if you are doing single camera streaming in YouTube or Facebook Live, you can add graphics and preloaded video to make your single camera streams a little more sophisticated. And even that will be really cool. So take a look. And in the meantime, Nancy Kerrigan. Nancy Kerrigan. She's the one with the horsey teeth. We talk about Vimeo and Indie Film Weekly a lot, and that's because everyone knows that the world's best filmmakers call Vimeo their online home. Now, they've offered a special discount on Vimeo Pro memberships for you, our listeners. Save 15% when you go to vimeo.com slash professionals, get pro, and enter the code NFS at checkout. When you do, you can upload up to 20 gigs of video each week and showcase your videos with unlimited bandwidth in Vimeo's ad-free 4K player. Plus, They just launched a cleaner and more customizable profile page that helps you showcase your videos. You can even upload a cover video. You'll get access to all of Vimeo Pro's powerful tools and join a supportive community of other passionate filmmakers and video professionals, just like at No Film School. A couple things you should know. The discount's limited to one per person and is only valid for your first year of membership. So some grant deadlines for filmmakers. The Made in New York series competition has a deadline of Friday, tomorrow, December 16th. This contest is for writers, producers, and directors to submit teleplays by, for, or about women. You don't have to be a woman to write it. It just has to be by, for, or about women. Two winners will receive a $15,000 cash grant and have their scripts developed into pilots by the First Dean Graduate School of Cinema students, which Charles happens to work at. Mm-hmm. We're all very excited about this. Please send in lots of great scripts. They're going to be shot next summer. It's going to be amazing. And, and we're hoping great material rolls in in droves. The pilots will air on New York City Media, the official broadcast network of the city of New York, and they might possibly go to series. 
If you have a short story with special cinematic potential, you might be interested in the ScreenCraft short story contest with a deadline of December 19th. The grand prize winner will receive $1,000 and personal introductions to literary agents, managers, producers, and publishers. And the second place wins $300. If you're worried they'll just steal your story, all rights and ownerships to stories submitted to this contest remain with the author until and unless other agreements are made. It's a pretty cool pretty cool contest right there yeah it's cool because you don't even have to have like a script it's just a short story and now moving on to this week's festival deadlines the webby awards deadline is on friday december 16th if you're not familiar with the webby awards it's the leading international award honoring excellence on the internet in six major media types that's websites film and video advertising media and pr social mobile sites and, and apps and podcasts and digital audio So some of you actually may be interested in more than just one category, but you should also note that entry fees in the film and video category are a whopping $385 unless you fall into one of their special categories like art and experimental, in which case it's still a little pricey, but it's only 150 bucks. Kansas City Film Fest has an extended deadline on Friday, December 16th. It's been running for 21 years. There's cash prizes, and the festival runs from April 5th to 9th, 2017. The Maryland Film Festival has their extended deadline on Friday as well. It's a big indie fest. It takes place in Baltimore from May 3rd to the 7th in 2017. The Phoenix Film Festival has an extended deadline on December 19th. This has been named one of the top 25 coolest film festivals and a top 50 worth the entry fee by Movie Maker Magazine. It takes place from April 6th to 13th, and it has cash prizes. In Ask No Film School this week, John asks, Need advice on a 4K camera, considering Panasonic X1000, Sony AX100, and Canon XC10. It seems the only real 4K is Panasonic. Any suggestions or advice? Amateur user intend to use the camera for traveling around the country. Africa and filming local events, concerts, parties, meetings, etc. Any help is appreciated. And I think it's also important to note that he asked for a 4K video camera under 5,000 US dollars, right? So these are like the best of the cheapest 4K cameras. Yeah, I mean that that would be the best of the cheapest. Okay. Definitely. Like yeah, if someone said what is the best 4K camera, I would probably say an Alexa, but that's like $100,000. Right, exactly. So, yeah. So, John, you list three complete all-in-one packages, so let's start with those type of cameras. All three of those cameras you list are a little bit obscure. The Sony is a handy cam that you don't see used a lot for professional style work. The uh, Canon is really focused more on low light sensitivity and it's not sort of a good all arounder. And the Panasonic isn't a super popular camera either. I would actually recommend you go for something with a larger user base and where the interface of the camera is really designed much more for standard cinema style use by a professional user, and that would be the DVX200. It fits under your price cap. The test footage online is all gorgeous. And if there's one thing Panasonic gets really well, it's the single operator user interface. Uh, Pretty much everybody of a certain age spent years on the DVX100. I shot a feature on the HVX200, which was the next evolution of that camera. And Panasonic pays a lot of attention to like, making sure it's super easy to use, making sure all the switches make sense, making sure a single operator can go out there and get amazing stuff with no accessories. Um, Also, right now, B&H here in the States are having a $400 rebate on the camera through December 31st, which brings it down to $3,800, which is a really good deal for the kind of image quality you get out of that camera. The other reason I would consider something like the HVX200 is that 
you kind of want a popular camera. Like popularity doesn't really matter in high school, but with a camera, it matters because there's going to be more folks on the user forums who have had experiences with it, who can explain when something's going wrong. There's going to be more and cheaper accessories when you want to get a wide angle adapter. There's going to be more support when you want to try new things. And I think, especially as a beginning user, getting a camera that a lot of other people have is going to be beneficial. You can totally shoot amazing stuff with obscure cameras nobody else uses. But it's a little bit harder, and when you want an accessory, it's like $100 more than it would be for the popular one. And I think it's worth buying into a platform that is widely supported, like the DVX200. However, for 4K on a budget, I think you should consider DSLRs and mirrorless cameras. Um, DSLRs are more work to travel with. They aren't designed for cinema, they're designed for stills, so you'll need to work around their ergonomics. You're going to need more accessories, more lenses, maybe adapters. But if you put in that extra work, it can really pay off with benefits in image quality, especially in low light. A lot of those all-in-ones have smaller sensors, and they have fixed lenses that don't open very wide. So it means, like, for instance, you mentioned shooting a concert in a remote town in the countryside. A lot of times those concerts, at least in the States, in places I've traveled in Latin America, not a lot of great lighting, sometimes lit with just street lights. That's not a lot of light volume. And with a fixed lens, small sensor camera, sometimes you're not getting images you like. The bigger sensor on a DSLR, which you can combine with like a faster lens, can result in some really amazingly clean, beautiful, low-light night footage that you'd never be able to get with a fixed lens camera. Yes, you'll need to buy a few lenses, and you'll need to drag around a camera case and interchange some parts and learn a little more. But I think the image quality you get might be worth the trade-off, and in the end, it could still end up being cheaper than an all-in-one. The classic and most popular DSLR you should look at is the 5D. You can get a 5D Mark III, and that should give you 4K, although the 5D Mark IV has better 4K options. Um, but you should also think about mirrorless, something like the Panasonic GH4, which is like $1,500, and the GH5 is coming out soon. Or, personally, I just got a Fujifilm X-T2. It does full Ultra HD 4K. It was $1,600. The lenses are very inexpensive. I found the footage quality to be quite attractive. If you're willing to carry those extra accessories and different lenses, I think it'll be worth it for the higher quality images you'll get, especially when you don't have a lot of control over the light. All right. Thanks, Charles. And now moving on to some movie openings for this week. Coming to VOD, last week we really didn't have many at all, but this week we have a whole ton of great titles that are hitting uh, HBO, Amazon, Netflix, just in time for the end of the year. The first of those coming to HBO Now or HBO Go is Midnight Special, which is one that we've talked about extensively on this show. You can start to watch it on HBO on December 17th. This is Jeff Nichols' sci-fi that came out earlier this year with Michael Shannon and Joel Edgerton. It's one of my favorite movies of the year. I It was a pretty good year for sci-fi, but I think that this and Arrival were two of the best that came out. We have an interview with star Joel Edgerton on his collaboration with Nichols that we conducted at South by Southwest this year, and you can check that out on the post accompanying this podcast. And coming to Amazon Prime Instant on December 17th is Anomalisa. This is Charlie Kaufman's animated dramedy that came out last year. It's about a businessman giving a speech at a hotel convention who has an affair with a woman and slowly loses his grip on reality. So the film was directed by Duke Johnson, and it was actually crowdfunded on Kickstarter because no studio would touch it. That's because it's really weird, it's by the way, really but it's weird. awesome. I mean, it's what you can expect from Charlie Kaufman. And if you're a Charlie Kaufman fan, you should... It delivers. Yeah, it delivers. And you should want to see what he does with like the animated medium. 
And it's animated in a really crazy way, too. Stop motion. Stop motion, yeah. It ended up being the first R-rated animated film to be nominated for the Academy Award for Best Animated Feature last year. And with the exception of David Thewlis and Jennifer Jason Leigh, every other character in the film is voiced by Tom Noonan. So that's another example of how weird this movie is. I am really eager to see that one. It sounds so interesting. And I also want to remind everybody that on Amazon this week, you can start to watch Do Not Resist, the documentary that we spoke about at the top of the show. One thing to add to that, though, is that that is not on Amazon Prime. So you have to either buy it or rent it um, if you want to watch it. Well, after hearing that story, I certainly want to give that guy money. Yeah, for sure. He deserves it. Yeah. Coming to Netflix is a horror documentary unlike anything you've ever seen. Brought to you by Morgan Spurlock, the man who made Super Size Me. Uh, the movie's called Rats, and it's a history of rat infestations in major cities throughout the world. You. If you live in New York City, this might keep you up at night. Um, he filmed the documentary from a rat's point of view, going into sewers and into garbage cans. And oh, God, it's disgusting. There's a lot of rat autopsies in this movie. So you get to see all of the gross living insides, including like larvae and flies. It's disgusting. When I talked to Spurlock at Toronto this year, he told me that he wanted to make this the style be like to use horror tropes. So he cuts really quickly and into a lot of jarring situations and there's horror type music. So it really does have that horror flavor. Also coming to Netflix on Friday is Barry, a look into the college life of U.S. President Barack Barry Obama. The film was directed by, by Vikram Gandhi and written by Adam Mansbach, who is, funny enough, most well-known for writing the best-selling picture book, Go the Fuck to Sleep. The movie stars Devin Terrell, Anya Taylor-Joy, who John and Emily both loved in The Witch, and Jason Mitchell. Terrell plays the young Obama, and when I saw the film at TIFF, he said in the Q&A, it became clear that we were making a movie about Barry, not Barack Obama. In other words, it really examines a formative period well before Obama became the international statesman he is today. I really like the film. I like the way it was shot. It's kind of a cool, moody portrait, not only of the character, but of New York City in the early 80s when Barack Obama was at Columbia University. And on Monday, Netflix treated us to a bit of a surprise by dropping Britt Marley's super secret sci-fi original series. Netflix picked it up in 2015 and we haven't heard a peep since until Monday when they dropped the trailer and then revealed that all eight hour-long episodes will be available this Friday, tomorrow. Despite Netflix's cagey approach, here's what we do know about the series. Marling stars as Prairie Johnson, a woman in her 20s who returns home after having been missing for seven years. It's unclear how or why she disappeared, but she returns having regained her sight as she was blind when she disappeared as a young girl. It looks very metaphysical and almost like room meets memento meets the lovely bones, as far as I can tell from the trailer. I personally love Britt Marling. I think she has an awesome backstory. She quit her job on Wall Street in order to become a micro-budget indie filmmaker. And two years later, she had two films premiering at Sundance that she had co-written and starred in. So she is a certified badass. Hitting theaters this week is Neruda, directed by Pablo Lorraine, who also directed the Oscar contender Jackie. It's about an inspector who hunts down Nobel Prize-winning Chilean poet Pablo Neruda, who becomes a fugitive in his home country in the late 1940s for joining the Communist Party. At the New York Film Festival premiere, Lorraine said, quote, You can't put Neruda in a box. It's impossible. You'll never grab him. This movie is like going to his house and playing with his toys and dreaming with his dreams. The film is 
very different than Jackie in the sense that it's a non-linear narrative. At first, you don't quite know what's going on at all. And I was talking about this with someone last night, actually. Um, It's not until about 45 minutes into the film that you realize how genius it is and what they're trying to do with it. It's part detective thriller, part political treatise, and part rollicking dreamscape. It's a cat and mouse game that adheres to the logic of poetry rather than narrative, and reality and fiction are completely blurred. Everything is built of metaphor and light. And speaking of light, Lorraine demanded a 360-degree perspective in order to shoot the film. This doesn't mean that he shot it in 360. He wanted to light the set so that he could shoot from any direction at any time, leaving maximum room for improvisation. And when he used artificial light, he attached it to the ceiling, and he didn't use a single tripod. So indie film releases have been pretty hot this whole month, but I have to admit, I'm personally so excited for Rogue One, the new Star Wars movie coming out on Friday. I got my tickets like a month ago. Um, I'm also excited for the interview Emily did with the film's DP, Greg Frazier. John also did a really cool post with a behind-the-scenes video about how the creatures in the movie were created and how, true to George Lucas's original vision, many of them were made with practical effects rather than CGI. So you can check out links to both of those posts uh, on this week's podcast post. Next week's show, believe it or not, will be our last Indie Film Weekly of the year, though not our last interview show. We'll have a couple more of those. Um, And on next week's show, we'll do a roundup of some of our year's best gear interview and movies. So I'm excited for that. That's right. So earlier this week, I spoke with Greg Frazier, a longtime collaborator of Garth Edwards. He shot both of Edwards' movies, which are out in theaters right now, Lion and the new Star Wars movie, Rogue One. On the surface, of course, these two films couldn't be any more different. One's an emotional true story of a poor Indian boy who's adopted by westernized parents, and the other is, well, Star Wars. But interestingly enough... Frazier shot both of these films at the same time, and as a result, he wound up using some of the very same techniques on each, including one game-changing discovery, the D3 RGB LED lights from Digital Sputnik. In India, it's a very limited budget. We had a really limited budget on this, which is something I'm really proud of, and you know, we all fought and worked really hard. And I, It takes me back to my early days of shooting you know, music videos for $1,000 and you know, being ingenious. And... You know, one of the good things about having done all this tech prep on Star Wars before I shot mine was I discovered these amazing RGB LED lights called Digital Sputnik. And, and you know, I was doing Rogue One and, and Lion kind of at the same time. I was prepping and shooting kind of both, you know, intertwined. And so there were so many similarities in the sense that, you know, the, the characterizations I tried to to be really, really strong character characterizations for both films. Um, and also, you know, what I learned in Lion, I tried to bring to Rogue. And what I learned on Rogue, I tried to bring to Lion. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it was a really great interconnected um, period of time for me as a, as a cinematographer because I got to, uh, you know, I got to exercise different parts of my brain but also still be true to um, what I want to, to watch in a movie. And on Monday, you can check out an interview I did with the director, screenwriter, and child star of A Monster Calls, which is a movie that's coming out this Christmas. Um, It got a lot of good buzz at the festival circuit this year, and it's a really beautiful, heartbreaking movie. Um, And the interview turned out really well. Uh, It was great to get all three of them in a room together. So listen to that on Monday. Please subscribe to the show on 
iTunes. That's the No Film School podcast. Visit us online at nofilmschool.com to get links to everything we talked about in this show and lots, lots more about the art of filmmaking. And of course, stay in touch. I'm at Liz Film on Twitter. At E.L. Booter. At Jim John Jim. Jim John Jim. At Charles Hayne. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. See you next week. Bye.